uh, yeah, I am just so glad that you're here today. I'm happy to see you. And if this is your first time here or even second time here, you picked the perfect Sunday to come because we are starting a brand new series entitled Running from God. Everyone say Running from God. And I don't know about you, but there have been several different times in my life where I felt through the Holy Spirit, through God's Word, and just through the act of obedience that I was called to do something, and I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it. And so I ran away in different ways. I may have ignored it. I may have walked away from the mission that God was calling me to. And that was an act of disobedience. That was not following the word of God, but also what I knew God was asking me to do. Any of you been slow to obedience that way? A few of you. We're going to be learning about a man in the next coming weeks that did that same thing, but in a very, very big way. So just by a show of hands, how many of you are somewhat familiar with the book of Jonah or with the story of Jonah? A few of you. What do you think of when you hear Jonah? What's the first thing that you think of? Whale. Or fish, right? Like the big fish. And I heard somebody describe this as a problem, and I think it is a problem, with that mentality. Because that's the first thing I think of, too. And I think we even have it in our graphic, if you, if you can pop up the, the series graphic, or if you got one of these postcards. <laughs> Go to the next one. Forget that. Uh, if you look at, at this, you'll see uh, Jonah is kind of falling down there. He's falling into the abyss. He's falling into the ocean. But if you saw in our card, we had the, the whale, or we had, and we're going to talk about that eventually. But... That's kind of the Veggie Tales version of the story. How many of you have read children's Bible stories before? Most of the time, they leave things out because it's geared towards kids. Like, I know a lot of nurseries are decorated with the scene of Noah and, like, the animals coming into the ark, and that's a cute idea until you realize what's actually happening. Like, maybe that shouldn't be on a kid's wall, right? Because what's happening is a judgment of all mankind is falling upon the earth. And not only did God rescue this, but he, you know, everyone else died, except for Jonah and his family. Uh, Noah and his family, not Jonah. So that isn't exactly the story. So a lot of times we think of Jonah as the whale story. Oh, well, he was trapped in the whale, and then he fell in line, got into obedience, and went out. That is kind of the VeggieTales version of it. How many of you have seen the VeggieTales uh, type of thing? That's the VeggieTales story. That is not the point of the story at all. That's not the point at all. We're going to talk about what the point is. Now, what, what it is, and I want to read a first few verses. You can open up the book here, but then we're going to go into some of the history of what's going on and, and what we don't understand culturally unless we really dig into it and try to look at it. Jonah uh, 1, 1 through 2, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of, I'm not even going to, how many of you can pronounce that? Amenitatai, maybe. I don't know. Saying... Here's what the word of the Lord said. Verse 2. Arise and what? Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up, what? Before me. 
God is saying their evil is so bad that it is right in front of my face. I cannot ignore it any longer. I have to do something about it. And, And so he calls to his servant, to his prophet, Jonah, to go do something about it. We see Jonah in other verses in the Bible as prophets within the kings and and talking to different people. So he's a historical figure that we're talking about here. And he is being called by God to go do something. He's being called by God to go to a different nation. See, Jonah thinks that he's primarily a prophet of the Lord for who? His own nation and his own people. And he wants to prophesy good things because they're God's people. And he wants to talk to God's people. And he wants to be a man of God, enjoying what it is to be a man of God, in obedience, in receiving all the acclaim and everything else that's good that comes with being a prophet in the land at that time. So God was primarily speaking to his nation at this point through the prophets. And sometimes they're minor or major prophets, but he's speaking to them in this way. So if you look at the very beginning of this book, one of the questions we always need to ask when we're reading through Scripture is, what am I reading? Well, you're reading the Bible. Yeah, I know that. But what kind of literature are you reading? Within the Bible, there's several different types of literature. You have poetry and psalms or songs. You have uh, parables that Jesus tells, which are stories that aren't necessarily true, but have a true meaning and impact to them kind of like telling a story that brings a moral about. You have parables and things like that. Then you have uh, historical accounts. When you read through scriptures in the Old Testament or even in the New Testament, you'll see accounts of things happening and it's being reported. It's not necessarily saying go and do this. It's reporting things because, you know, when we read some of the Old Testament, not everything we read in the Bible are things that we're supposed to do or even the New Testament. You know, there's that old story where somebody was flipping through the scriptures and they're looking for a word from God, and they're saying, oh, God, just tell me what I'm supposed to do. And they drop their finger down to the verse where it says, and Judas went and hung himself. That's not how we're supposed to read Scripture. Not everything is prescribed. It may be described, not prescribed. You with me? So there's a lot of history that's talked about and things that go on there. And then we have books of prophets or uh, prophecy that occurs, and that's what we think this is at first. Now there's an element to it. Because it says at the very first part of it, what does it say? Go back to the first verse, if you would, Aiden. Now the word of who? The Lord came to Jonah the son. So what it's saying here is God spoke to Jonah. He told him to do something. And that's how most of the books of prophecy start. In fact, I think Jonah would have been extremely happy if he was born 150 or so years later. Because we have a book that talks about the Ninevites later. And that is the book of Nahum. And in Nahum, it's, it, it, the whole thing is a prophecy from God. And it starts out in a very similar way. It says that, hey, the word of God came to him. Uh, that he had, I think it was a, a dream. It says that he, he was looking and he saw something. And, and so uh, he gets to prophesy judgment on Nineveh. He prophesies the destruction of Nineveh, and he lists out the things that they did wrong. So God comes and speaks to him and says, I'm done with Nineveh. I want to destroy it. And so Nahum gets to be that guy who prophesies that. I think that Jonah would have been 
thrilled to preach that message. And I want to explain why. If you look at Nahum, you're going to see why exactly. Because you see that in uh, Nahum chapter 1, verse 9 through 10, and I'm not going to read all of these, that they plot against God and God's people. And then in Nahum 2, 12, there's exploitation of the hopeless and helpless. All throughout Scripture, you're going to see this. And in fact, uh, Jesus quotes some of these verses where he says, you have to take care of the poor, and you have to take care of the needy, and you have to take care of the children. Otherwise, it would be better that if you weren't ever born. And then even in the Old Testament, you see, what kind of fast do I desire? Uh, here's what I want when you want to do something spiritual. I want you to take care of the poor, the homeless, and the needy. This is what God says all the time throughout the Old Testament. When we read the Old Testament in big chunks sometimes, or we think about it, we sometimes think of a God that is just out to destroy. Like God, you know, wipes out the earth with the flood and Noah. And God gets upset with this, these people, or even his own people sometimes, and a huge chunk of them just get thrown away. Uh, we see that. What we forget to see is the time in between the verses and in the sentences and, and what you see when you look at that and when you actually look at what God's asking his people to do is you see loving kindness and you see long suffering. How many of you have uh, done things to your parents that they had to put up with for a long time? See, here's, here's the thing with Abba Father, a, a God who loves us, is he looks down on us, and he does not smite us every time we do something wrong. Otherwise, none of us would be here. So God is long-suffering. Well, what does that mean? It means that he does see evil, but he doesn't always take care of it in judgment right away. But, I know we love the loving God, but we have to acknowledge that God is long-suffering but he will not suffer forever. And he will not allow others to suffer forever. Eventually, there will be judgment. And I know we feel uncomfortable with that sometimes, but trust me, you want that in this world. Like, we don't want the Nazis to go on and rule the world. Amen? Like, we were happy when that judgment came, when that stopped, when that movement stopped. And so when we see genocide in different areas, uh, we may say, God, where are you and what is happening? But we know that God is long-suffering and he provides mercy, but eventually, even in this life, judgment comes for those who disobey him, for those who take advantage of the hopeless and helpless. So they also had vast cruelty and war, and you see that in Nahum uh, 2, 12 through 13. And then they practiced all forms of idolatry, which means they worshiped several gods, and then they were also involved in prostitution and witchcraft in, with, that, uh, with that in Nahum 3.4. You see that. So they do all of these things. And eventually the stench is so bad in God's face. And they've done so much harm to other humans that God says, I'm done. You had your chance. Here's your whooping. And he blanks out the city. And he sends Nahum there. And he says, the destruction is coming and the destruction comes. And Nineveh is destroyed, utterly destroyed. So, that's later, after Jonah's dead for a long time, this happened. But Jonah is told to do something else. Jonah is told to go and preach a message of repentance. 
So judgment, but God's given them a chance to repent, and Jonah understands that. And so he's very upset about this. And I know sometimes we think that the reason that that Jonah didn't want to go was because he was afraid, and yes, he was afraid. He was very afraid, but not from what you think. And let's get back to that in a second, because I want to talk about Nineveh, the great city of Nineveh. What does it mean that it is a great city, and yet they were doing all the bad stuff? It means that it was enormous. Now, by today's standards, it wouldn't be that large, but in historical archaeological standards, it was huge. You have over 120,000 people living in this environment. There are city walls, and there are gates, and it is the city of cities. It is New York City to the world then. It is the most advanced. It has the most culture. It has the most gold. It has the most food. It has the best architecture. It has the best art. It has all of these things going for it. We have an illustration that I, I want to show you, if you can pop that up for me, Aiden. And it's, no, not that one. <laughs> there you go. Thank you. So I don't know if you can see this very well, but this is an illustration based on some of the ruins. And these would be their temples that would be outside. They just had these enormous temples where they would worship different gods. They would practice prostitution. Church was a little bit different back then. And they would do all of these things. And then they would have the walls, they said. I think they could run on some of the city walls that were surrounding the city. They'd be able to run chariots over the top of them. Meaning they're so wide that the chariots could ride around to the different posts. And so this was a well-fortified city. This city had everything going for it. And if, if you read through history about what happened in Assyria in this time and what was going on, is you see that there's always this power struggle that's going on. And Nineveh plays a prominent role all of the time. It is sometimes considered the capital of Assyria. And what we're looking at is generally seen as uh, northern Iraq. That's where Nineveh is. It's over in that area. And, and so they all live there, and there's these battles that go on, and these kings that, that rule, but they rule with an iron fist. And they rule with fear and intimidation. And Nineveh is the best and worst at this. They're the very best at creating this pain. They're the very best at creating torture techniques. They're the very best at erasing the history of their captives. They're the very best at making slaves and, and, and procuring people from other distant lands to come and do their hard work or even their intelligent work. So they would take the best of the best and put them to work. And they were the very best at causing fear in the old land. So you can imagine the fear that Jonah would have or you think that he would have going into this situation because God tells him to do something. And he kind of says, uh-uh, no way, right? He wants to run away from what God wants him to do. Well, what are some of the things that they would do? What are some of the things that they would do? The Assyrians were known as the lords of torture. If you can think of mo the most vilest things that happen within war today, or the most vilest form of terrorism, the Assyrians had them beat. The Assyrians invented stuff to, to just create mental images in all of the world so that they would be feared. They were feared, an enormous empire. They were the largest empire. They were known as like a world empire at that time. 
and they had mastered the art of war. They knew what they were doing. In fact, the Assyrians were the first ones that eventually had a professional army. Now, what does that mean? Like, what would that do for you? If you have a professional army, it means you don't have to have people going in harvest. They don't have to leave during harvest. Instead, they can work at killing others, acquiring land, and subduing other peoples all of the time. And not only that, they would hire people out from other nations. So you imagine, there's only one army that's hiring. Who are you going to go fight for if you like to fight? If you don't like to farm, but you like to fight, who are you going to go fight for? You fight for the Assyrians. So they have uh, all of these people coming in to continue to do the work. And you have these kings, just outright evil kings. Evil kings that are oppressing the people, that are hurting the poor, and that are continuing to hurt others. So what, what are some of the things that they would do? They would amputate their captives. So they would subdue a city or a village, and they would take off arms and legs. In fact, one of the kings took record, and there's historical records of it, bragged about how he took all the captives and chopped off their arms and their legs and then had them wander around the city. So he took them to Nineveh and, and did this. They would take people and they would skin them alive, flay them, and then hang. One of the kings bragged about how many, his, all of his walls were covered in skin. They would do this to show their power and their ability to do this. Show some of the pictures I've got there, Aiden, if you would. Now, they, they, they also were the first culture uh, to take images and put them on obelisks and on stone. And they would put these throughout their, their conquered lands and even their own city. What you're seeing here is an impalement. But this isn't just like they would impale the body after they were dead. Most of the time, they would take the person, tie them up on this pail, on this stick, and then leave them there so that every breath that they took, that spike would inch up into them until they would just die a horrific, horrific death. And they would line up mass execution style hundreds and hundreds of people this way. Is that disturbing? You see why God is angry with this situation? They would, uh, they, not only would they do that, they would do psychological things. Here you see a picture right here of them forcing a, a subdued nation to grind up the bones of their ancestors. Now, why would they do that? They would go into nations and erase all the history of that nation in order to control them and take over their population. No longer would they exist. They were now assimilated, forced into slavery, forced into acknowledging that their history did not exist. Can you, can you see how that would demoralize people? They did all sorts of things. Uh, they would take kings and they would blind them and then they would let them become beggars within the city gates. And so that person that used to be there is, is now doing this. They would just execute everybody and, and they, would, they would torture in extreme ways. In fact, you know who invented crucifixion? Nailing people to the cross, that's how Jesus died. It wasn't the Romans. No, the Romans stole that from the Assyrians. They invented that. It wasn't even their favorite method. You know why? It killed people too quickly and it wasn't painful enough. This is the type of people that you're dealing with. So if we were talking about a nation doing this right now, how many of you would want God to just wipe that out? Just stop it, right? I would. I would want that. Like, look, I want everyone to get saved, but if they aren't going to be saved and they're doing this type of stuff, that needs to stop. That needs to stop. 
And so this is the environment that Jonah is growing up with. These are the people that are oppressing his people. These are the people that his nation is afraid of. He's deeply afraid of them. Why? Because they're doing this type of nasty stuff all the time. All the time. And they're the ones that are in control of the whole world. If you, if you think about what Nazi Germany tried to do in taking over the entire world, the Assyrians had pretty much done it. They controlled everything. And this was their technique and method of control. Outright violence, viciousness, and fear and intimidation. They were excellent at it. And to be honest, if the devil had any fans of nations, it would be this nation because of what they did to God's people as well. So Jonah grows up in an environment where how do you think his feelings are towards the Ninevites? Do you think he has a lot of warm fuzzies? How do you think he, he feels about them? I believe that Jonah may have been praying for God to come down and just wipe them out. I believe most of Israel would be praying that. Most of Jerusalem would. All, all of these people would be praying for this because these are the most fearful things. This is the biggest problem in the known world, and this is what they're dealing with. I can't imagine what it would be like. In fact, even the soldiers of the Syrians had issues with this. In fact, it's widely reported, widely reported that they would have uh, dreams and open-eyed visions of ghosts. They would have psychological breakdowns. Because they would, see, like, they would see these torture techniques in the main city. You know, you walk to the marketplace, there's people being impaled. People being beheaded. All this stuff is going on all the time. They would see this. And, and people eventually had PTSD. That's what it is. They would be seeing things and hearing things that aren't there. It messed them up because they really weren't able to handle it either. And they were just proud of, of what they did. They were extremely happy with the methods that they used. They thought that they were going to continue to be in control through all of these. How many of you are glad we don't live there right now? I am. I'm glad that there's more peace now and, and, and there's less control of that. And we, we do face situations where things like this happen, but it's not happening all the time, is it? Matthew 12, 38 through 42, Jesus actually makes a reference to not only his judgment, but to Jonah. He says this, One day some teachers of religious laws and Pharisees came to Jesus and said, Teacher, we want you to show us a miraculous sign to prove your authority. But Jesus replied, What? Only an evil and adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign the only sign I will give them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. The people of Nineveh will stand up against the generation, this generation on Judgment Day and condemn it, for they repented of their sins at the preaching of Jonah. Now someone greater than Jonah is here, but you refuse to repent. The queen of Sheba will also stand up against this generation on Judgment Day and condemn it. For she came from a distant land to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Now someone greater than Solomon is here as you refuse to listen. Jesus makes a historical reference to Jonah. 
And what he tells the people of his day who are coming out, this is a vicious teardown, okay? What he tells the people that are talking with him is they are worse than the Assyrians and the Ninevites. They are worse than those ones who threw into torture because at least those ones repented. And he equates his story with the one of Jonah in that he is going to, what does it point to? Does anyone have a guess of what this points to? His crucifixion, his death and burial, and then his resurrection, right? So Jonah's story, the the part about the fish, in essence is a type of Christ that is to come. We see it as a foreshadowing of what will eventually happen to Jesus. And Jesus came to preach to those that were in need. Amen? Who was in need? For all have sinned and what? Fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone is in need. Everyone is in the same position as the Ninevites. And as horrific as some of these things that the Assyrians did, we have to remember that any sin separates us from the love of God until we have repentance, forgiveness, and salvation. So we're all in the same area of judgment. We're all not going to make it. We all need to seek forgiveness and repentance, and God is calling us all to that. So we better not get heady or haughty thinking that we are better off than the people that are worse at, better at sinning. You see what I'm saying? We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And God has sent us Jesus Christ as the ultimate prophet, as the ultimate Savior, to preach to us the good news that while we are in sin, we can be redeemed. That while we are in judgment, we are under judgment, we can be set free from that judgment and we can be forgiven. Amen? This is the good news. The bad news is we're all born as Ninevites. The good news is we can all become children of God. Now here's the issue. Jonah is not afraid of the Ninevites. He's not afraid of death. Jonah is the type of guy who will gladly go to his death if he wants to. Jonah is afraid of God's forgiveness. Jonah is afraid of God's mercy. How can that be? His hatred for the Ninevites and what they've done is so strong that he does not want to see them saved. He does not want to see them forgiven. He is so upset with what they've done to the people around them and his nation. He is so angry that he is unwilling to listen to the voice of God and the word of God and be obedient. And so when God says, I want you to go do this, he says, no way. He doesn't even respond, really. He responds with action because that's what God's looking for anyways is action. But he goes the opposite direction you think he would. In fact, I think I have a map of the historical world. Aiden, if you can pop that map up. It's there. This is awful hard to see for you guys, isn't it? I want to point this out really quick so you can get an idea geographically. We'll show this again next week, too, when we jump back into it. You have Nineveh over here. And this is several days' journey, okay? Several days. It is quite a distance away. 
You have Nineveh, you have Babylonia, and these two kind of switch back and forth as far as who is the most powerful. And there's a lot of war and activity that goes in over here. And this is modern-day northern Iraq, okay? It's not too far. Nineveh isn't too far from Mosul. So you have this happening here, and you have the word of God that comes to Jonah. He's over here. He gets in a boat in Joppa, and we'll see that in a little bit, and he heads towards Tarshish. And we don't know exactly where Tarshish is, but, but here's what we do know about it. It was basically the end of the earth. Like, they thought, if you go any further than this, you could just disappear and fall off the earth. This is where it ends. This is where the known world ends. And so, what does Jonah do when the word of God comes to him and tells him to go to Nineveh? What does he do? He goes the opposite direction. He's like, no way. And he jumps in a boat, pays, he pays his way, and just starts heading this way to Tarshish. He is going the absolute different direction from where he's supposed to go. Why did he do that again? Anyone remember why? We said it. He didn't want Nineveh to be saved. He thought, if there's a chance that God could forgive them, I want no part in this. I don't think that they're worth it. I don't think that they deserve it. I think that they should burn in hell. And I think they should suffer now. How many of you have had something vicious happen to you or your family where you've had that kind of anger? When I uh, am holding Levi, or even when I just go to change his diaper, he blows up in anger at me. Like furious. I'm trying to help the kid. And I sometimes think about, oh, thank God this kid is much smaller than me. If babies had powers, we'd all be dead. None of us would survive. He, if he was able to do what he wants to do in that moment, like I would just be obliterated. He would just take me you know, by the hand and just throw me against the wall. So I'm glad that we you know, don't have kids that can do that, right? This is a situation that I think happens in our lives. It is God speaks to us and tells us to love our enemies, and we like the idea of it, but we don't like the follow through. I like the idea of loving my enemy, but if you put the enemy in my backyard, Or even if they just walk their dog in my yard and they don't pick it up, I get pretty angry. Or, let's get real, like when I was, I was growing up, you know, we had a desert storm. A lot of you have seen a lot of different wars and skirmishes. And it's easy to get caught up in the patriotic idea of destroying our enemies. But that's not what scripture says to do. It's just to pray for them. Now, I'm not making an argument against righteous war. I think God uses that as judgment sometimes on nations and on areas. I think God uses that to correct things. But I'm not the one that gets to make that decision. He does. And here's what he's told me, and he's told you, and he's told us in Scripture. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
And all of us need redemption. And we're to pray for our enemies, even if they use us. Even if they hit us. Even if they persecute us. Even if they cut off the heads of other Christians. We're not to, to say, uh, to pray vengeance on them. We're to pray that God would bless them. And what is the greatest blessing God can give? It's the opportunity for salvation and for redemption or judgment. See, sometimes we want to divorce God from the idea of judgment and suffering and destruction. But honestly, if we think about our world, if it went unchecked without any of that happening, only evil would prevail. And I think it is God's grace and love that sometimes he shuts down nations. I think it is God's grace and love for the rest of the world that sometimes there is judgment. And what you see in Jonah's story here, right here, is you see that God is giving them one last chance. One last chance. It's enough. It's already been enough. God is long-suffering, but he will not allow others to suffer forever. You with me? Eventually, the cries of those that are in anguish, the innocent blood, rises to the point where judgment occurs. And so Jonah is sent to try to stop that from happening. And he gets in a boat, and he heads the opposite direction. I don't know who your Nineveh is. I don't know who has wronged you to the point where you hope God never forgives them. But I know that most of us have scars and have pains and have feelings that are very close to that. God is long-suffering. The best thing we can do is pray blessings for those people. The best thing we can do is pray that God would bring them a prophet to speak to them. It may not be you. And the best thing we can do is pray that God would release us from that bitterness. And here's what's going to happen. One of two things. They're either going to come to the light and they're going to have their eyes opened and they're going to receive redemption and they're going to ask forgiveness and repentance. And repentance means not just, oh, I'm sorry and I feel bad about it. But no, instead, I, I want to change my life and move in the opposite direction. I want to follow God. They're either going to decide to do that or they're going to decide and choose for themselves the judgment of God. And some people do not get judged in this life. Some people do. Some people don't get judged in this life, but they get judged in the afterlife forever. You with me? So, we pray for those who use us. We pray that God would forgive them. We don't want to see the destruction, but we allow God to do the work that he's doing. Jonah had a problem. So when we look at the book of Jonah, what we see is something that, that's very important. Remember I said that we need to figure out what type of literature it is. And at first it looks like it is just one of the prophets. It's, it's, a, it's a book of prophecy. It isn't, though. I mean, it has that in it. But this is one of the weirdest books in all of the Bible. And that's why I've been excited to preach about this. Because Jonah is almost like a graphic novel. How many of you have read those before? Or, or a blockbuster movie, okay? Everything is extreme. Everything about this story is extreme. The Ninevites are extreme. 
Jonah is extreme. Everything is happening really big. Even how he runs away, and then a giant fish swallows him, that's pretty extreme, right? And then even when he gets to Nineveh, it talks about how he had to do a five days journey or seven days journey, I think it's something like that. And if you figure that out, it's like way bigger than it is. Like the city of Nineveh is big. Everything about this is big. And if, if, how many of you grew up watching cartoons? Imagine this is like in the middle of the Bible, somebody puts a comic book, a cartoon in there to try to prove a point. And I'm not saying it isn't real. I believe it's real. But the point of it isn't just that it's real. The point of it is to show you something through the story of Jonah. Because when you start looking at the story of Jonah, it isn't just about a whale, and it isn't just about the Ninevites. It's about a character, and that character is Jonah, the prophet of God. And if you're going to look, if you're going to have a villain, if you're going to have an anti-hero in the story, the anti-hero ends up being Jonah himself. You're like, well, wait a minute, Pastor Ben. He decided to go and do what God wanted him to do. He did, but his heart wasn't there. And you'll see that later. Jonah is a look at humanity and at the children of God, and it is a critical expose of what happens when we are self-righteous and we think of ourselves higher than we should and we just aren't obedient to God, and even when we do right, we want wrong. So if you think it's about the redemption of the Ninevites, it's really not just about that. It is about God speaking to somebody and then using this story to show us our own hearts. Because at the end of the story, we're like, oh, Jonah, you're, you're a real jerk. And then at the end of it, we realize, whoa, I'm kind of like that. You ever read those stories and you think that? Well, you put yourself in this position? I think all of us have been in the situation that Jonah is in. All of us have battled through these issues, and some of us are still battling through them right now. And this book is going to show us how to handle it and really how not to handle it. Because the hero isn't who you think it is. Jonah is not a good dude. And if you're going to write a book about yourself or have something written about you, you do not want your story to be Jonah's story. Because even though he eventually follows through with what God wants him to do, his heart is never there. And then we just, man, when you get to the end of it. How many of you have actually read through the book of Jonah or really studied it? A few of you. Good. This is going to be fun. We're going to go verse by verse, and I swear we're going to go faster next week. But I know we only read a couple verses, but I really want to put the ground out work out there for you to see what's happening. You, you realize that, that Jonah is in a situation, and I think I, like if I'm honest with myself, if I'm looking at this story, and, and God called me to go, go just show up to ISIS, and to say, hey, the word of the Lord is here. I'm a prophet of God, and I'm here to tell you, if you don't stop and repent, he's just going to demolish you. He's, God wants to destroy you. Like That's probably not going to go well for me, <laughs> unless I'm protected by God. And there's also a little bit of me that doesn't want to see those people that hurt others and kill babies and, and, and blow up families and do all this vicious stuff. I don't want to see them redeemed. Because I want them to pay for what they've done, because they've done wrong. Any of you ever feel that way too? Like there's just some harm that happens to others. That you know, when you start hurting innocent people, that really makes me upset. And yet God has a heart 
for everyone. He wants to give everyone an opportunity. But this is, this is what's good about the story, is he will ultimately make people pay for the decisions that they make if they do not seek forgiveness and if they do not repent. So the book of Jonah takes God's children and the Ninevites and shows the response that occurs in both these situations. And then when Jesus quotes it in Matthew and in Luke, what he's actually doing is he's pointing out the flawed behavior of God's children who don't understand what God is doing. Because throughout all the Abraham prophecies, you see that God is telling the people that all of the nations will be blessed through what I do for you. I want you to realize that God hasn't called you just into salvation, into eternity, and into heaven, and into rewards for yourself. He's called you there so that you can be a blessing to all of the nations. Amen? If we believe that, we have to start living it. And Jonah is a book of revival. And it needs to start within our hearts. Because we could have revival break out in our community. We could have revival break out in our county. And yet still, it could not touch us personally. And I think that is a bad place to be as believers of God and as followers of Jesus. I want to be in it. Amen? Yeah, you want to be in it? I want to be in it. I want to be a part of it. And I don't just want it to pass me. I want to be a part of what God is doing. Our hearts have to become more and more like Jesus. So are we moving towards Jonah? Are we moving towards Jesus? We're going to look at some more verses next week. Thank you so much for being here. I want to pray, and then the worship team is going to come up. And I want you to be thinking about that. Are you running from God? Are you running from the mercy of God yourself? Are you running from God asking you to seek forgiveness? Oh, come here, buddy. It's okay. Say hi to everyone. That isn't his angry cry, by the way. Yeah. Are we, loving, are we running away from the love that God has for us? Personally, are we running away from the love that God has for others? Lord, I thank you so much for your word that convicts us, that shows us who we are and what's inside of our hearts. And Lord, I pray that as we look at the book of Jonah and as we read it, you would start opening it up to us through the power of your Holy Spirit. We would see exactly what you're doing within us, what you want us to do. And that we would have hearts of obedience, but not just obedience, Lord. I, I want us to be at the point where we desire to see the work of God go forward, where we get happy about things. Lord, I pray that that would start within us, that we would be joyful in who you've called us to be, that we would be joyful in the work that's at our fingertips, that we wouldn't have enemies, we just have people we pray for a little bit harder. <laughs> Lord, help us to do that. In Jesus Christ's name we pray.